Oh, hello. Welcome to our fourth annual Civil War Halloween Spooktacular, live once again from the Boo Barn. I am joined by a pair of cauldron-stirring <laughs> ghouls, Bloody Mary Fincher, and our special guest from the deepest recesses of hell, also known as Indiana, are the dearly departed Jen Benson Price. As always, I am nothing more than an egg house named Darren. Good evening, <laughs> ghouls. How are you doing today? Good. On this happy Halloween. It's almost Halloween. How are we all doing? It is almost Halloween. Yes. It is. Egg house. It, it's yeah. Halloween and it's time for it's already our fourth Halloween spooktacular from the from the Boo Barn. We, we're doing this again. We're getting the whole band back together again. And, uh, and of course, we're going to tell some good stories. But before we start, Mary. I am going to be a gracious host again and ask you. Actually, I'm going to ask Jen first because she's our guest today. So you wait in line. Jen, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking Smirnoff Ice Peach Lemonade out of my Antietam tumbler. Oh, cool. Because I did not. I'm talking about South Mountain tonight, and Antietam is the closest thing I had to South Mountain because I didn't buy anything that says South Mountain. So I'm using my Antietam tumbler. It's fair, fair. And Bloody Mary Pincher, what are you drinking this fine evening? I am drinking Whirlpool by Night Shift Brewing, which is, I think, in... Um, I, I should know this. Everett, Mass. Okay, Assuming it's well, named after Edward Everett. And I'm drinking it out of a skeleton or skull cup. Excellent, excellent. And what are you drinking? Oh, thank you for asking. You never asked. I figured I'd ask. I'm drinking it's Stellwag and it's called Juice and it's it's pretty good because if you look real close, it's got a picture of Mary on it. And she makes a face, so you can see exactly <laughs> where it is right there. So that's why I picked this can. And I am drinking it out of my cheap plastic Walmart mug because Walmart is the scariest place in the neighborhood. So I figure for Halloween this it is what is I wanted actually... to do. So that's that's what I am drinking. So that's what we are doing today. So we are gonna have some fun today. Tonight we're gonna talk about some Civil War ghost stories and I mean, look, I know ghosts aren't real, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. But whether you believe in ghosts or not, uh, in the stories of the great beyond, around this time of the year, there is nothing better than turning down the lights, watching Mary drink 11 pumpkin IPAs, and telling <laughs> ghost stories. So tonight, we are going to take turns yet again to tell from frightful yarns and maybe even learn a little bit of Civil War history that revolves around Halloween. What do you think? Do it again? What do you, how do you feel? I think so. I I'm think here. it's on. Let's do this. And then, All you, right. I was going to say the one thing about ghost tours is that, um, you know, I know not everybody is a fan of them, but I think we would all encourage people to go on them if they get the chance, because it is a way to learn the history of the area, um, because the ghost stories are often based in, in history. They're part of the history of the town and they they do bring tourists in. And um, I've been on one in Gettysburg and I went on one in Salem and they were both great experiences. I, you know, I learned so much history yeah, on them both. They're a lot of fun. You, you learn some history, you tell some good stories. And around this time of year, like we said a few minutes ago, everybody loves a good ghost story. So, Jen, why don't you kick us off with your, your tales of woe <laughs> as we talk about the Halloween and the Civil War and some fun ghost stories tonight? Um, I'm doing Ghosts of South Mountain this year because it's an area that we haven't talked about. And I feel like it's 
overlooked in a lot of ways, not just in Civil War history, but also as far as like the paranormal, aside from the fact that it's very close to Burkittsville where the Blair Witch took place, you don't hear mm -hmm. that much about South Mountain as far as like ghost stories and things. So I did some research. Um, my first story deals with um, the woman I named myself after tonight um, and the South Mountain, the old South Mountain Inn on the National Turnpike out there. Um, the house was built, they think around 1732. And there is evidence that George Washington went through there on his way to Fort Duquesne for the French and Indian War. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was kind of like a road post. And it was definitely there during the Civil War. It was used as headquarters for D.H. Hill during the Battle of South Mountain. And um, they, I read that it was a field hospital for South Mountain in Antietam, but I only found that in one spot and I couldn't find any documentation. Mm -hmm. So that I'm not sure about, but I thought I'd mention it. Um, then in 1876, it was built, but it was bought by Madeline Dahlgren, who was a wealthy widow, and she ran it as an inn, and it was an like an active restaurant up until the last couple of years. But I read this year it was bought by the Maryland Historical, like Historical Preservation, mm -hmm. and they're going to use it as kind of like a South Mountain Visitor Center. That's so cool. it's going to be opening again, but it was just purchased in like August of 2023. So that's all a work in progress. But um, it's a neat place. Like I've never been inside, but it's even just driving by there, like it, it felt like the Appalachian tour that will take you up to South Mountain by the Carolina Monuments and stuff is there. So the, the house is very old, very cool. It's got a lot of history. It's in a really neat spot. But um, the ghost story, I wanted to give some background on the house because I don't know if anybody is familiar mm -hmm. with it. But um, the ghost, the first ghost story I have actually involves when it was the South Mountain Inn run by Madeline Dahlgren, her, she had two guests there. Um, this was, she bought it in 1876. So this was sometime after that. And um, she had these two gentlemen that could hear like just sounds of battle and yelling and horses. And so they went up to like an observation area and they're looking around and they can still hear all this noise and just like fighting and shooting. And they're hearing cannons, they're hearing horses squealing, they're hearing all this noise and they go outside, they go outside and look and they can't, they can still hear it, but they don't see anything. Oh my God. So they could, That's... like, they could hear the Battle of South Mountain, but they didn't see anything. Um, and actually, Madeline Dahlgren herself wrote a book and she talks about people being able to, like, years and years after the battle, once it was like protected land, you could still see campfires. Um, she came home one evening to her children and some of her guests, like, totally freaked out because they had heard, like, soldiers' horses galloping toward the house. And it sounded like they were right outside, but when they looked, there was nothing there. Oh my God. That's so crazy. So I didn't find anything that happens like inside the house, mm -hmm. but it sounds like it's a good place to look out around the house and see and hear all kinds of things. That... So I thought that was very interesting just because of all the history with the house. And then the fact that you can still, like I said, I didn't see or hear anything that goes on inside the house. And from what I've read of Mrs. Dahlgren, she probably wouldn't have stood for a haunted house, mm -hmm. which is why everything happened outside. But um, yeah, so it just, it, if you're ever out there, it's a, probably a good place to just stand and listen and see if you hear anything. That's cool. That's a cool story. It's also kind of creepy, though, like if you were inside the house and you could hear the cannons the, and stuff. The cannons and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like I've heard yeah, of, yeah. I've heard of that happening at like, you know, people have said that happens at Gettysburg sometimes. I think it happens it at a lot to of my friend. Yeah. It's creepy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Good story. Good story. That's awesome way to start us off. Um, right. 
So mine, my first one is I chose a prison camp, um, a, a Confederate one, uh, Johnson's Island in Lake Erie, which I've visited a few times, and it is a very cool place to visit. It's also very sad because the, the the cemetery is there, um, and then it's also very like there's definitely it's definitely a very active place when it comes to hauntings and stuff like that. Um, but basically just some history on the site. So in 1862, Leonard Johnson leases 40 acres of the Island to the federal government. Um, and it was fairly isolated in Lake Erie. And the reason it was chosen was because of that isolation. Like they had a couple other islands picked out in Lake Erie. One of them, they were like, no, this is too close to Canada. And okay. the Southern sympathizers up in Canada might come across and break into the prison it was thought to be way too close um so the first prisoners of war there are going to be from fort henry and fort donelson in 1862 i thought maybe that hiram granbury might have been one of them but i don't think he was taken there he was taken to fort warren in boston um and then it's where officers primarily went um so they had 26 generals there um during the 40 months that it was open um, about I read some different numbers. I read nine thousand prisoners one in one source. I read ten thousand in another, fifteen thousand in another. Total prisoners that went through there. So the numbers aren't exactly known. Um, but early in the war, the living conditions were fairly good at Johnson's Island, just as they were at Elmira as well. Um, but then, as thing as time went on, and I think they started to find out about Andersonville, um, they cut their rations. The you know the areas where the barracks where the prisoners lived weren't as well kept and all that. And there was actually sutlers that were able to come in from, from the area and they were, they would sell stuff to the soldiers that the, you know, the stuff that the government wasn't issuing them, they could sell them. Well, when they started to cut rations um, and conditions became not as good, um, they cut off what the sutlers could sell as well, basically making conditions a little bit worse for the prisoners. The winters in Lake, in that area were pretty harsh back then. Um, There was some escapees, um, a few times it was during the winter and what they would do is they would wait for Lake Erie to freeze over. And there was one instance where the guards were actually chasing these guys across frozen Lake Erie. And then they were like, you know what? Screw it. This is stupid. If these guys make it to Canada, good for them. And apparently the guys made it to Canada. Um, I don't know what happened to them, but they made it. Um, in 1864, um, the exchange system ceased to exist and that's when it got really crowded there. The highest number of prisoners was in January um, of, I think, 1865, and it was 3,224 were on this, uh, in this prison. And some of the more famous prisoners there, uh, Isaac Trimble was held there for 14 months, uh, James Archer, Allegheny Johnson, um, William Tennant Stockton, and not many people will probably recognize his name, but he was at the Battle of Chickamauga, and he was wounded there. Um, he's with um, a regiment from Florida. And anyway, at the Battle of Chattanooga, he was still recovering from his wound, but I think he was out fighting. But he, because of his wound, he couldn't get away fast enough with his men when they were retreating. And um, so he wounds up getting captured and sent to uh, Johnson's Island. Um, in the spring of 1865, they started releasing prisoners if they swore um, an oath to the Union. And um, in the cemetery there, there's 206 Confederates buried. Some of them are unknown because every few years they go in and they go in with ground penetrating radar and as the technology improves, they find they do find more bodies and they do rebury them as well. Um, and there's a Johnson's Island Preservation Society, which is pretty interesting as well. So the 
the most prominent haunting I found uh, comes from the first one, the, the recorded one was in 1902, and there was um, they were doing quarry work to make um, breakwaters in Cleveland, and they had um, these workers that were from Ital- uh, Italy, and they couldn't speak much English, and they had like they're kind of like they had their their songs that they would sing and stuff. Well, one day. Um, the commander, he or the um the boss, he's there and he's like, he heard them humming and singing this one song, and he's like, "Where'd you hear that?" And they just kind of shrugged and they said, "Um, you know, someone had been singing it across the quarry where the prison camp had been, and it was the song Dixie." And oh there's wow! No way they would have known that song, but they adopted it. So wow. there were soldiers singing Dixie. Um, and the other story that happened was some workers, there was a storm that came up in Lake Erie and storms on there can come up really, really quickly. And anyway, they go into the graveyard and they're kind of sheltering and all of a sudden they hear a bugle call and then they they see soldiers rise up from their graves wearing like ghosts, gray and butternut, get into line with their muskets and start marching. Like I'd scream like a girl and run. Yeah, like that's what these poor workers saw. They were like, "Oh my god!" And when you go there, voices can be heard um, in the woods at night where the old prison camp was. There's often silhouetted figures seen in the cemetery, as well as where the the actual camp was. It's you can only go to the cemetery on the island now. Like the rest of it is privately owned land, and it's you drive across this like causeway. You pay like five dollars to drive across it. It's but it's really worth going to. It's a really interesting place. But when I read that story about the like these poor workers are there and these soldiers are like ghost soldiers dressed in gray and butternut are rising from their graves and going to fight. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that that is Johnson's Island. Yeah. The rising from the graves has given me the willies. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I, know. I saw your face. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was reading that. I'm like, oh, this is scary. That is pretty freaky. It's probably like on a Monday morning too. Crap. (laughs) Whole week. Whole week's going to be now. That's how it would be. Well, that was a good story, Mary. Not bad. Yeah, no, I like that one. That's definitely a place I'd like to go. Yeah, it's it's really worth visiting because like there's, you know, there's so much history there um, and there's the Johnson's Island Preservation Society. So they do events. They do fundraising and stuff there for them. Uh Um, There's like you can walk in. And there was like one time I went and wrote down the name of one of the guys and did some research on him. And he was from Arkansas and he was an older officer. He was in his, um, I think his fifties when he was there. Um, at some of them, it's just unknown, you know, and they had, I think there wasn't like, I think there, I can't, I couldn't find the death figures, but, um, you know, they had their own issues, like all the prison camps did like just worsening conditions after they found out about Andersonville and all that. Okay. Yeah. Well, Darren, you're up. Well, it's about time. Third time. Anyway, mm-hmm. so my first story comes from the Atlanta campaign, which, you know, specifically the Battle of Kolb's Farm, which took place on July, on June 22nd of, 18, of uh, 1864, outside of the city of Marietta, Georgia. Now, as you remember, Mary, you probably don't, but, but William T. Sherman, you know, he's driving on Atlanta from Chattanooga during the summer of 64, while his Confederate nemesis, Joseph E. Johnson, is setting up that defensive line to stop him, right? 
Johnson's line ran 10 miles from a place called Noonday Creek on his right, uh, right running past the lower part of Kennesaw Mountain, and anchor on his left at a place called Noise Creek. Now, Sherman, as he's done over and over and over again, is going to try to turn Johnson's left and his left flank, and he hoped that Joseph Hooker's 20th Corps will join uh, John Schofield's uh, 23rd Corps uh, at the farm of the Widow Kolb's house uh, near Kennesaw Mountain, okay? Let me know, 14,000 guys, a lot of guys. Sensing this movement, Johnson is going to send 11,000 troops under John Bell Hood from the rebel right through the town of Marietta into basically to find and attack Hooker is what he's going to try to do. Now, it wasn't long until Hooker is going, uh, Hood is going to find Hooker in, in Schofield near that Kolb farm, and he saw an opportunity here <laughs> to strike him before he got into Marietta, right? So without orders from Joseph E. Johnson, a full YOLO situation, Hood is going to move his men forward at, at, the, at the Union troops at about 5 p.m. on June 22nd. The first fight for Kennesaw, the line is going to begin right at the Battle of Kolb's Farm. Now, we weren't going to really discuss, they're not going to discuss the battle in detail, but, but in the end, the Union troops prevailed and about 2,000 rebel casualties fell to about 200, 250 Union guys, okay? The result of this small battle is going to lead to the much larger Battle of Kennesaw Mountain a few days later, as soldiers basically who fought at Kolb's Farm moved on. Or did they? I see where you go on there. Anyway, (laughs) since that day of June of 1864, that site has experienced a lot of strange phenomena that are still being experienced today, okay? If you visit the site today, which, Mary, you and I have visited, right, the the original house is Mm -hmm. still there, and it's been very well preserved. But the land around it, which saw much of the battle, is built over specifically a housing development called uh, Colbridge Court, which is basically a nice suburban little neighborhood um, with several houses for sale. You can buy one. They're about 250 If you're interested in buying a haunted house in Georgia, there's plenty available. I checked. Right? I think I'll pass. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. But after basically, after people moved into this, this Colbridge neighborhood, some strange things started happening in the neighborhood, which is right on the battlefield. In October of 2007, a father and a, and a son are driving at night through the neighborhood, and suddenly they stopped to see a soldier riding on a horse in front of them, right what? in their headlights. And he kind of slowly drifts by and disappears as he gets on the other side of the road. Um, but the famous story about, about Kolb um, is the story of the Tatum family. This goes back to the, or to the late 1980s. This story of the Tatum family at Kolb's farm was actually featured on Robert Stack's Unsolved Mystery TV show. I remember so that you know show. So you know it's true. I did okay? too. Right, but this this episode was featured on, on that episode. You can look it up. Basically, what the story is, is about a retired guy, a retired Army soldier named James Tatum and his wife Catherine. And they're going to buy a property at Cold Ridge, um, that, that, that neighborhood, right on that battlefield. Now, James... Like many, many people, guys anyway, like to get up really early in the morning, read the paper, you know, don't have to deal with anything, just have a little peace <laughs> and solitude while his wife stayed in bed. Now, his wife was, was, was older and she couldn't get up right away. So he had to basically get her out of bed, help her out of bed. Because of where the bedroom was, he couldn't really hear her when she yelled. Jane, what the hell are you? <laughs> she, you know, she, he couldn't hear it. So she had a bell. And she would ring the bell. And so he knew if he's reading the paper, 
He heard the bell ring. He probably put the paper down and sighed and rolled his eyes. <laughs> and then he walked, he walked upstairs to go get her out of bed, right? <laughs> so that's what was happening. So one morning, James is reading the newspaper, and he hears the bell ring. So he goes upstairs to go get his wife out of bed like he'd been doing every single morning. He gets there, and she's wide dead asleep, out like a light still. And so he wakes her up, and he says, um, hey, Catherine, do you uh, why do you ring the bell? She's like, I didn't ring the bell. It's that ghost. And he's like, what? And he, she's like, yeah, there's been weird things have been happening in this house, and she never, she never told him. So James, he's like, okay, fine, it's the ghost. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to ring the bell three times, ding, ding, three distinct times so I know it's you. Because the ghost won't know it's three. It'll just ring it. So if I hear three, I know it's you. So the next morning, James is downstairs reading the paper again. Um, and he hears the bell ring three distinct times. So he's like, okay, fine. So he goes upstairs and guess what? She's still in bed asleep. So he's what? like, okay. So, so needless to say, he's like, get the freaking bell out of here. No more bell. We're not going <laughs> to deal with the bell. So they, they get rid of the bell. So things settle down. And so just about a year or so later, Catherine wakes up in the middle of the night and the bathroom light is on and she, you know, the bedroom doors open, the bathroom light is on. So she assumes her husband's in the bathroom, like older people tend to do in the middle of the night. They go to the bathroom a lot, right? So she wakes up and she looks to see the light on and, and she sees a figure walk by. And so she's like, okay. But all of a sudden she turns and James is in bed next to her. Oh wow! So so she kind of she kind of has a pucker effect moment, Whoa. and then she sees a walk by again, and the figure is wearing a long coat with a big floppy hat pulled over his eyes, and kind of slowly walks by, lean, leans into the room, and then keeps walking, walks out again. So now she's like, "What the you know? She, what the hell?" So from that point on, whatever this thing is, tended to focus on Catherine. James never experienced anything, but it was always her. One time. She's upstairs and she hears uh, James's power drill going off, one of those electric drills. And, and she rolls her eyes, goes, oh, what the hell is he building now, right? And it keeps going off, going on. She walks downstairs. She gets down there to find out that he's not even home. And the drill's just sitting there by itself. And she's, she's like, okay, well, she's like, this, 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 is, this is not good. Another time she hears that she's, she's watching TV and she hears this popping noise in the living room, like a pop. And so she gets up and she starts walking towards the middle of the room and she walks on this wall of static electricity. And, and then for the rest of the night, wherever she went, she kept walking into it. This, this, what? like, you know, it's like static. She, like, oh my God. She, she, so she know how to handle it. Another time she was, um, she heard her husband walk in the door and start dropping coins one by one into a bowl. And so she's like, okay, whatever. She walks downstairs again. He's not even home. And the bowl of coins is, 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 is sitting on the floor, totally knocked over on the kitchen floor. Yeah. So right. she's like, so she's, so she's like, what the hell's going on? But the worst one, and this is when she finally had enough is enough. She's sitting there making dinner one day and she's over the stove and um, she feels hands around her waist. Thinking her husband is coming to hug her, put her arms around her. At that very moment, she goes to turn around to see him. And there's a window there. She looks out the window and there's her husband in the backyard raking the grass, raking the leaves. Oh, wow. And she, she freaks out. She jumps and she turns around. Of course, there's, there's nothing there. So she finally said, you know what? We're out of here. 
So this was supposed to be a place they're going to move. They're going to finally move to a place called Winter Springs, Florida, and they're going to sell their cold courthouse and never to return again. And they basically lived out, lived out their days in Florida. Catherine died in 2001. James lived four more years, died in 2005. But they never found out, or she never did, the, the identity of who this man with the floppy hat and the long coat was. Was it the ghost of John, John Bell Hood? Was it the ghost of a random soldier? She'll, she'll never know. But to this day, people in that subdivision around Cold Farm, they still report strange occurrences in that neighborhood. And, and they chalk it up to living on a Civil War battlefield. But it's, nothing's ever been explained. But yeah, but that's, um, that's Cold Farm. That, that's, cool. that's a cool story. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so you can go on to Unsolved Mysteries, you can Google it, and you can find it and see the whole story. But it's a, it's a creepy story. And, yeah. um, it, and it's interesting how whatever this thing was focused on just her and not yeah. him. Yeah. And so who knows? Who knows what it was? But we'll, we'll never know. That's we'll never Yeah, know. I'm going to have to go look up. I used to love Unsolved Mysteries. I'm going to have to look that episode up. That's, That's a good one. I think you can get yeah. it on streaming, some streaming service now or something. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think some of them have like an Unsolved Mysteries channel. So yeah. I'll have to go look for it. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, was, that was creepy. That was good, but yeah. creepy. Yeah, yeah. I've been fun waking up and seeing the bathroom light on tonight. That's what I'm sure. That happened in Gettysburg. Like I woke up and someone had like a bat- the bathroom light on and I was like, not me. Yeah, nope, 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 nope. All right. Um, so, Joe, what's, what's your second story? My second story is also from the Battle of South Mountain. Um, there is a legend of a farm owner named Daniel Wise, who charred, who came out of his house to find Confederate, or to find the Ninth Corps burying Confederate soldiers in his well. And he was like, crap, I was just digging that. It's not even a working well yet. So the, the legend goes that he said, all right, you know, I, I'm not happy about this, but you guys can, if, I, if you guys give me a dollar a soldier, you can throw them down the well and I'll take another one. It's fine. So supposedly he let the Ninth Corps throw like, 58 confederates down this well and he made 60 bucks for himself and everybody went home happy no big oh deal God. well there were definitely soldiers buried on this man's farm and in his well which was actually a cistern that they were digging and a couple several years ago they found like the location of the original cistern um if you're on fox's gap you can see kind of the location where everything was like it's not marked but uh, like you can see this is the area where Daniel Weiss cabin was and his well was like in front of where the cabin was but um, anyway so what actually happened is that the Ninth Corps was bearing Confederate soldiers all in that area and I think at at one point for a couple of years they had like 120 Confederate soldiers buried all over their farmland this family did wow so but the legend goes like the legend is that Daniel Weiss charged them but he never made any money off it he wasn't even there for the burials um they happened on september 15th and 16th and he mm. wasn't he wasn't even there because they'd fled when the battle of south mountain started because yeah. there was heavy fighting like all around his farm but anyway so the legend that i read says that when daniel weiss came home he kept hearing someone say they couldn't breathe because they were face down oh. and he's like what in the world is going on here i can't you know, my kids are fine. They're asleep. My, you know, my granddaughter's here. She's fine. Everybody's sleeping. What, what is going on here? Well, he followed the boys outside to one of the burial areas 
And the guy's like, I can't breathe. You've got to help me if, you know, I can't breathe. So he starts digging and he gets to where the, the Confederate soldiers are buried and finds a body that was face down. So he flipped it up, reburied them all, and the voices stopped. Oh, my God. That's so creepy. Isn't that creepy? That's so creepy. That's creepy. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's... Yeah. 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 Laura, well, Laura and I spent a day at Weiss's farm trying to figure out where the well was, only to find out later that it was a cistern, and it's, like, right in front of the road. So oh, wow. now we know what, what it is. You want to get a creepy story that just, that just came out, speaking of cemeteries. You guys have heard of the Lincoln Cemetery in Gettysburg, right? Yeah, yeah. Laura and yeah. I just went there. The African-American Cemetery? Well, mm-hmm. the, apparently a couple of days ago, they, they had the feeling that um, well, they, they found out that there was a lot of unburied, unmarked graves in the bar. Yeah, there's a so there's not very many marked. So, so they ran uh, one of those ground penetrating radars, and they found a whole bunch of them. Here's the creepy thing: you know how deep the, the bodies are buried? Two feet. Oh my goodness! All like the right bodies the surface. Are, wow. There's a, there's a there's a picture you can look at. I forget uh, one of the one of the Gettysburg. I always saw I that. Talk, yeah, you can see the body. Like you can see. I have to go look. They're, they're I'll, have to send it to, they're, I'll have to look and I'll have to send it to Laura. Yeah. All 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 the uh, all the unknowns are uh, unmarked are two feet deep. That's all they are. That's unbelievable. Wow. wow. So yeah, anyways, yeah. We, we Laura and I just went to Lincoln Cemetery because we had never been there, and you can't. It's locked, so we couldn't get in. But we walked around the outside and. And paid I know a guy who might have gone through a fence. I got to know one time. Yeah, me, we thought about it. We thought yeah, about not, it. Not me, of course, but somebody. well, I'm, I'm glad your friend didn't get in trouble. <laughs> no, I'm glad he didn't either. Glad he didn't either. But in any case, so it's it's a cool little place. All right, Mary. So that's a good yep. story. We yeah, like that thank story you, Dan. That was great. That was creepy. Like. Yeah, that no. one spooked me. That's why I decided to go with South Mountain stories. This yeah, year. well, it's not one that gets like just like the battle. It doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring it up because I love South Mountain is one of my favorite places to visit when we go to Antietam, mm-hmm. even if we just drive around. Yeah, it's I good. love going up there. I've been there once and I loved it and I've always wanted to go back. That's um, a that's a cool yeah. place. Yeah, that's yeah. A cool place. yeah. Laura and I drive through there at least once every time I visit. That's cool. Yeah, we've I have not been back. I haven't been there in like it's been like seven years, I think been a long yeah. time so i need to get we'll back have to, there. we'll have to we'll have to meet there yes that'd be fun i'd love that um so i guess my story is my turn again um so it's your turn again yeah so i'm not ta- well there are places in in obviously the story i'm going to talk about but i'm talking about an individual who haunts two different places and that is um or supposedly haunts two different places and that is general pierre gustave Toutain beauregard um so a little bit about his background He was born in 1818 in Louisiana, about 20 miles, um, just 20 miles outside New Orleans. Um, He's of Louisiana Creole descent. Um, He spoke French until he was 12, um, and then he learned English when he went to school in New York. So he always spoke with a bit of an accent. And um, because he was French Creole, he was the victim of a lot of wild rumors, especially during the Civil War. Like during the Civil War, there was rumors that he had trains, like a train full of concubines and wagons full of champagne and that he was like unfaithful to his wife because that was one of the stereotypes of the Creoles at the time. Um, And in an effort to fit in more, um, like when he went to West Point, he started uh, calling himself Peter. Um, and then he just eventually just went with uh, Gustav. So some of his signatures, you'll see that it's just G.T. Beauregard, and he completely okay. takes the peer out. Um, oh. It's all in an effort to try and fit in a little bit more. Um, when he attended West Point, one of his teachers was Robert Anderson, who was the commander at Fort Sumter when Beauregard ordered it fired upon. Uh, his nicknames were Little Creole, Bory, 
little Frenchman, Felix, and little Napoleon, which tells me that I, I don't think he was a very tall guy, if they're calling him, like, little. So yeah. I, I don't know how short uh, Beauregard was. Uh, he's going to graduate second in his class in 1838, and upon graduation, he returns to New Orleans, where he had an office on Bourbon Street, and he works for the United States Corps of Engineers. And he also worked on an improved furnace for boiling sugar. So he's one of these generals that enjoys inventing stuff in his um, his spare time. He's going to fight in the Mexican-American War. Um, he's superintendent of West Point right before the Civil War. Um, but then Louisiana secedes, and the Federals revoke the orders for him, and Beauregard is forced to relinquish the office just five days um, after he takes like the role of superintendent. So I think he might be the most short-lived superintendent of West Point. Um, he wasn't too happy about the decision, and he basically said that they had cast an improper reflection on him um, just because he was from the South, that they just made this assumption that he was going to, you know, you know, give up his complete allegiance and all that, which he obviously he does. He fights for the, the Confederates. Um, but he's going to be the first general in the Confederate States Army on March 1st, 1861. Um, he's sent to Charleston by President Davis to command the defenses there in Charleston. He's very popular at first, like he has his name in a lot of newspapers, and he's very popular among the ladies. Like, women loved Beauregard, and they loved to write to him, um, which I found interesting, too. Um, people said that um, on first meeting, like, they noticed that he had a very um, foreign appearance. His skin was smooth and olive-complexioned. His eyes, half-lidded, were dark, with a trace of um, Gallic melancholy about them. His hair was black, though by 1860 he maintained... Um, that color with dye um, and then during the civil war when the blockade was happening he couldn't get his hair dye as much so he was um, almost completely gray at times um, and this quote also said he was strikingly handsome and enjoyed the attentions of women but probably not excessively or illicitly he sported a dark mustache and goatee and he rather resembled napoleon iii the ruler of france although he often saw himself in the mold of the more celebrated napoleon bonaparte um and because of this bo why. yes <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> no, I was going to say, as one does. Yeah, yeah, as one does. Um, you are so Napoleon III. <laughs> could you imagine? That? You're not Napoleon Bonaparte. You're Napoleon III. <laughs> like, who's those, are that? Fight, those are fighting words, yeah. I think. Yeah, who's that? Um, he could be arrogant, shockingly. Um, he didn't get along well with uh, people like Bragg or Davis. Um, and he also was very by the book when it came to Civil War tactics. So he couldn't break away from that Jomini. And that was kind of a hindrance for him. Like if he was working with somebody that kind of wanted to break away with that, then he was always like, no, we have to do what's written in the textbook. And there was issues with him with the Mexican in the Mexican War with that. Um, so he is going to be the one that orders the first shots of the Civil War fired. Um, he does send Robert Anderson a gift of bourbon and cigars at one point before he fires upon Fort Sumter. And it was kind of just this whole... I, I don't know if it was kind of like, I'm sorry for what I have to do, but I have to do it kind of thing. Um, so he's known as the hero of Fort Sumter. He's going to fight at First Bull Run, Shiloh, Corinth. Then he goes back to Charleston again, Richmond, back to the West. So he gets shuffled around a lot because Davis does not like Beauregard and Beauregard does not like Davis. Um, and there's a lot of stuff there for that. He was um, After the Civil War, he was reluctant to seek amnesty. But it was uh, uh, Robert E. Lee, General Johnston, that were like, you should probably do this. Um, you should seek amnesty. 
and he was issued a pardon on July the 4th, 1868, and he was restored the right to run for public office on July 24th, 1876, and it was the, the bill was signed by President Grant. He's involved in railroads, the Louisiana lottery. He worked to end the harsh penalties levied on Louisiana by the Republicans during uh, Reconstruction, and he was married twice. Uh, the first was to Marie Antoinette Lore Villers. I'm probably butchering the poor woman's name. Um, she dies in 1850. And then he marries uh, Caroline Deslande. And they married in 1860, but she died in 1864 after a long illness, unfortunately. Um, Beauregard died in Louisiana on February 20th, 1893, at the age of 74. Rumor has it he was buried without his boots. So, you know, uniform and socks is what he's buried in. So no boots. And that's going to factor into one of the stories about him. Um, so the first place I'm going to talk about that he haunts is the Beauregard Keys House, which is in, um, it's on Chartres, Chartres Street. I can't say it in Louisiana, um, in New Orleans. And the Canadian can't have a can't no, speak French. I can't. Yeah. I can't talk tonight for some reason. Um, so once, it was once a residential home. It's now a museum that you can go see. They do not talk about the ghost stories on their website at all. Um, it's also known as the Beauregard House, um, and when it was when it was a residence, that's what it was known as. So the history of the house: it was built in 1826 um, by a local auctioneer, and then even back when it was first built, the home was said to be filled with spirits and dark energy. I read one um, account of one of the families that lived there where their son apparently had something happen to him and he went crazy and he ran out of the house naked with an axe, saying that. He could, like, if the house was driving him nuts, basically. Um, Yikes. And the house eventually goes to the Merle's family, and they build a garden in the rear courtyard, so that's why it has a garden there. And Beauregard and his wife Caroline, after they were married, they briefly stayed in the house for their honeymoon. And she had also planned to have a ball there for Beauregard in 1861 when he had to come back from West Point. She wanted to welcome him back. But little thing called the war happens, and he has to go to Charleston and all that, um, and the ball never happens. And he will also never see Caroline again as she, since she passes away in 1864. Um, after the war, when Beauregard returned to New Orleans, he's going to rent the house and live there for a few years with um, two of his sons. And the owner at the time was a local grocer. And so Beauregard lives there from 1866 to 1868 before he moves to a house on Royal Street. Um, but it's still going to be known as the Beauregard House. So the hauntings in this place, they're one of them, the most prominent is orchestra music, dancing, and laughter that can be heard from the ballroom. And the story is it's the ball that Caroline never got to have for Beauregard. Uh, oh. Beauregard is seen in his full uniform, and there's also silhouettes of him and Caroline dancing in the ballroom. And sometimes, and this was really creepy, um, you can hear the sounds of cannon and fire, and sometimes there's been reports that the Battle of Shiloh suddenly appears there, like there's dead horses and soldiers in this one hallway. Oh, wow. So he's kind of reliving, and that battle was like really prominent for him, so he's kind of like reliving that in that house. Um, and Beauregard apparently walks around at night looking for his boots in this house. And because he had been such a, such a meticulous dresser, um, there's this legend that says he won't die or he won't rest until he has his boots back with him. So he walks around the house um, looking for his boots. Um, there's a ghost cat there named Caroline. And there's also a ghost dog named Lucky. And Lucky belonged to an author named um, Frances Parkinson Keys. And she once lived in the house. She moved to Nor New Orleans 
um, from New England, and she renovated the house in 1944. And she was one of the ones who um, saw Beauregard looking for his boots. She was the first one to talk about that story. Um, she wrote a book called Madame Castle's Lodger, which was a fictionalized account of Beauregard's life. And she doesn't haunt the house, but like I said, her dog Lucky does. Um, and they also keep a binder of all the hauntings that have happened. Oh, They've that's been doing cool. that since the 80s. That's cool. So the most common thing is workers, tour guides, and visitors. Um, we'll see, like, they've seen a lady in white. Uh, one story, um, a worker saw a man sitting in a chair who smiled at him and then disappeared. Didn't say what the guy looked like, but that's... So there's a lot... There's, so there's some stuff going on at that house. Some of it connected with uh, General Beauregard, they think. Um, and the other place that Beauregard haunts is Charleston, which makes sense because that's where he is during the Civil War for part of it. Um, so apparently at the Charleston City Hall, his ghost likes to overlook the city council chambers from a second floor balcony. So they'll be having a council meeting and look up and there's Beauregard looking at them. Um, and his ghost also walks around there at night. And then 37 Meeting Street, which was where Beauregard had his headquarters at one time, it has a balcony and his ghost is seen looking out over the city. And they think he's kind of looking out watching over it kind of that you know probably was there before Fort Sumter and he also um there's also a ghost that paces back and forth at night on the second floor and that was something that Beauregard was known to do uh late at night was he if he couldn't sleep he would get up and pace so they can hear the ghost pacing up there so that's my stories about Beauregard that's cool yeah. I looked it up he was five seven. Five seven. okay so he is that's average uh, height for the time little, but, little, yeah but still short than me but yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, shoes are important, Mary. That's why the Battle of Gettysburg was fought. Yeah, maybe that's shoes. Maybe that's why, why he wants his boots back because they made him taller. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably probably, it probably got like there. a three-inch heel on them or something. They're probably like, they're probably those platform shoes. He's probably they're probably, they're probably, they're probably, they're probably the Air Jordans from back. They're probably worth a fortune. Probably, probably that's why he wanted them. I just pictured yeah. him walking around in those ridiculous boots from the seventies. That's what I was picturing too. Wow. Okay. That's I can't get that. I can't get that image out of my head now. <laughs> <laughs> big black. I'm expecting. I'm expecting a Photoshop. Yeah, with regard to these big boots, <laughs> you probably would be. I don't blame him. Probably lifts. Probably why he's so short. High heel <laughs> boots like Prince used to wear. Yeah, probably six two. Like, he wore them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right. Can I go now? Can I go? Yes, you yeah. can. Okay. Please thank you. Anywho, all right. So my next story isn't about a battle or battlefield. It's about a fort, specifically Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia. Um. Despite the fort being known for primarily the Civil War, uh, Fort Monroe's history goes all the way back to 1609 uh, when fortifications were built uh, at Old Point. Uh, Comfort got its name in 1834 when it was named for President James Monroe. There you go. So 1834, a young engineer stationed there named Robert Edward Lee Mary. He was there as well as the imprisoned Chief Blackhawk. Following the 1832 Black Hawk War, again, it's always important to say that slowly. Learn that lesson. Okay, we yep. just learned that lesson, right? But by the mid-1830s, Fort Monroe was one of the most powerful forts in the entire country. It was called the Gibraltar on the Chesapeake Bay. Now, when the Civil War broke out in 1861, despite the fact that Virginia seceded, um, Fort Monroe stayed in Union hands throughout the entire war. Early in the war, May 27, 1861, Benjamin Spoon's Butler Mary, he issued a, the famous Fort Monroe Doctrine course, which said that if any slaves reached the fort, they would not be returned to slavery in direct contrast to the fugitive slave law at the time. Uh, 
It would also be the landing spot for George McClellan's army in the spring of 1862 for his Peninsula Campaign, where in, 18, in, in 1864, Butler, under the Army of the James, created the second U.S. Uh, Colored Cavalry. So it's got a lot of history there. For many, Fort Monroe is best known for Confederate President Jefferson Davis was held for two years after his capture in 18, uh, 1865 at Rowandale, Georgia. Now, the fort, like many, you know, it lost its necessity over time. It was finally closed, actually, on May 13, 2005. That's how long this thing oh, was wow. Oh, I didn't realize so, it was open that you know, long. It was. Yeah. Where it became a historical site, especially the casemate, which was the area where Jefferson Davis prison cell was held. Mm -hmm. Although many, although the many famous men who spend time at Fort Monroe are long gone, including several U.S. presidents visited, as well as authors like Edgar Allan Poe. He was actually stationed there. He was known then as Edward Edgar Perry at the time. So there you go. But many reports state that these past people who've stayed at the fort and visited are still there. And the, the location as old as Fort, uh, Fort Monroe is bound to have as many several ghost stories, which, of course, this one does. The first one is about the, the famous white lady, and she's been seen wandering the grounds at the fort nearby. At the old Chamberlain Hotel site, which is right, right nearby, it is now ironically a retirement community. So imagine spooking those people <laughs> on a regular basis, but that, that's what it is Good. right now. Um, so just, I hear that they are literally having their hair scared white. Oh my God. <laughs> is this thing on? Anyway, so, but, that, but, but that's how it is. But the story of woman and the woman in white is, re is reportedly the wife of a much older captain who was stationed at the fort. Apparently, the boat captain, who was older than the younger wife, was neglecting his young wife. So she started to show her stern <laughs> to a younger man. Oh okay. So her <laughs> husband her husband found the couple in the throes one day. And she Ooh. finally and what she did is she shot and killed the wife for cheating on him. Oh my God. Ooh. And so since then, the sightings of this woman in white in a white nightgown roaming the grounds around Fort Monroe have been seen reportedly searching in vain for her lover, her paramour, right? Another ghost that's been seen regularly is the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe, who apparently has been – who was stationed there, like I said before. He went to West Point. Yeah. He, ret he returned to the fort years later where it said he got the inspiration for his story, Annabelle Lee, and his story, The Raven. We're, we're inspired by Fort Monroe. Some say this, the ghost of Poe has been seen reading to a young woman on a porch near that former Chamberlain Hotel. That there's been sightings wow. of that. But the most famous ghost story of Fort Monroe is the spirit of Jefferson Davis. Oh, wow. Who was, who was imprisoned there for two years for treason, as well as the implication that he was part of the Lincoln assassination. Um, in life, Davis's wife, Verena, was 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 in the building nearby while he was in jail, uh, where he was he was like I said he was stationed at a place uh, in prison, a place rather called the Casemate, and that's she was in a place where she could watch him as he walked the grounds. She wanted to make sure he was healthy, he was eating. She'd see him walking around. She knew he was okay. And so what happened was he would take this night every single day because that was his time to get outside. Mm -hmm. She would always be she was always sure that she was in the window outside watching him walk from a distance so she could watch her husband walk 
and many have reported seeing the sight of a ghostly man walking around the ramparts, while at the same time, if you're standing at that window, it vibrates. What? Oh, wow. So the sight, the sight of this, this specter walking around while he was walking, if you were standing at that window, you could feel it vibrating. Like Verena's oh, wow. still there watching him walk. Oh, oh my wow. God. That's right. So is this Jefferson and Verena in more foreman row stuck in this endless loop of walking and watching? Who knows, right? Who knows? One more quick story about Fort Monroe. And if you happen to be visiting Fort Monroe and you like beer like Mary, okay, <laughs> you can, and your your low beer lights going off like it tends to ha- tends to happen. Okay. You you can stop by a brewery right nearby. It's called the Ouzelfinch Beer and, and, and a brewery right on a place called Patch Road, right near the fort. Now, the bar is full of artifacts from the fort. It's it's a, mm. it's, a it's a place. But allegedly, it has a very protective spirit who haunts the bar called the Watchman. Whoa. And, and what he would do is he's seen by, by customers. He's been seen by employees alike over the years. Several employees have seen him. It, it's this, this Watchman figure, they call him, including the manager, a guy named Paul Mesker Smith. And he tells a story where one night he was in the back of the brewery and he heard someone calling his name three times. And it was the last time being slow. So it was like, Paul, 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 like that. Oh, okay. Baby. And so he turns around. And of course, he's expecting to see one of his staff mm-hmm. bothering him. And of course, there's nobody there. And he denied. Everyone denied it. So after closing, he's like, I know I heard this. He pulls out the video camera of this, this closed circuit to rewind it to see what the hell happened because it was it was recorded. They didn't pick up anything, but they got the audio of him saying this. Oh, and you wow. See, you, see, you see his reaction. So if you're at Fort Monroe, um, the ghosts are not confined to just the fort. And if you get a beer after touring the place, you might run into at the Oozle Bridge uh, Brewery. You might run into the Watchmen while you throw back a few IPAs, Mary. So you better be careful you go to Fort Monroe. Wow. That's I looked at that one. Fort Monroe was a possibility for me and then I was like, oh, oh I was I moved on to like Johnson's Island. But a place like that with so much history, yeah. who knows, but the, but there's certainly a lot of energy and a lot of, of, of history that is there. So if 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 those if if the past life, you know, future life exists that after you die, it's going to be a place like that. So if you happen to go to Fort Monroe, you can have many opportunities. You can see the, the woman in white. You can see mm-hmm. Jeff Davis. You can see the watchman. You might even see the woman who showed her stern. <laughs> showed who knows? Stern. Hey. And, Ver- and Verena Davis too, right? And, and Verena. Yeah. The, the, the vibrating window. So, so, so yeah. So this, so that that's uh, that's the story of Fort Monroe. But there's many stories like this just waiting to be discovered. And it, you know whether you believe in the stuff or not. You can go and you can visit. You can learn that Jefferson Davis was there. You can mm-hmm. learn that Poe was there. You know, you can learn all these stories that take place in them, whether you believe in that the afterlife or not. It doesn't really matter. You can go and find out, but you can learn about the people who were there mm-hmm. and maybe pick up some things afterwards if you're interested in such a thing. So there are some cool places to go like that. Yeah, there's. I mean, that's what I like. That was really cool. I did not know that history of Fort Monroe. The story about Verena and Davis is kind of sad in a way. It that is. I she's that like, she's there watching him, and clearly that was like, if that was like, was she able to go visit him, or she couldn't? She couldn't visit him. Wow. But so she, so she was in a building basically across the way, 
and she knew his schedule, like they knew at whatever time it was that he got to walk and get outside and stretch his legs. And so she was standing at the window and she could, she said that, you know, what she didn't say, but the, the stories are she, she could tell if he was healthy, if he'd been eating, if he, you know, and he, so he, she just watched him walk. And that was like her day. Wow. Um, and, and allegedly it's, um, you know, it, it, it's still happening. You gotta, if you get it yep. at the right time, you know, you can stand at the window, feel the vibrations, look out the window and see old Jeff Davis. That's creepy. See him walk in the ramparts. It's creepy. Wrong. creepy. Well, maybe Beauregard will find his platform boots. <laughs> Next, you know, there'll be a ghost of Beauregard with these try the, those, those big long boots with the big zipper on the side yeah he'll be yeah. walking around in you those Pierre, Pierre, Pierre Gustave for the main stage please Pierre Gustave for the main stage <laughs> I didn't read if he wears like you know the ghost in Charleston like obviously maybe that ghost has boots on but it's just interesting how you know he then that would be something he would be pissed off about is he's immaculately dressed they bury without him out without his boots and he's so like i guess i don't want to say vain but he's like of course he's haunting looking for his boots that's hilarious all right so people like their shoes people like their shoes so so i think you know we know as of all the years we've talked about this we've talked about there's so many cool stories and this is just the tip of the iceberg with this which is great about this this is our fourth spooktacular live yep. from the boo barn live with Jen. Boo barn. we could we could do 50 of these it goes on and on and on yep. there are so many cool stories waiting to be discovered so whether you go to any of the battlefields where they go to any of these historical places, even non-Civil War. I hear there's some non-Civil War historical places you could visit there. I can't yeah. believe it, but I, I allegedly I hear they exist. You can take these stories and, and take these tours and learn these fun stories. And whether you believe in this stuff or not, it doesn't matter because you're going to learn some stuff about the location you're at that's different. And it's going to be entertaining. So mm -hmm. enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy it for what it is. Yep. That's, yep. that's the whole point of it is that just kind of the entertainment and – there are people like I think you, John. You got into the Civil War right because of the because of the Dan Sickles story, right? That was my introduction to Sickles was on a yeah. ghost tour. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And that some that's cool how you got into because then you go and you read more about him. You read like you know. Yeah, I just I thought the story of him like carrying his leg around was just so funny. Yeah, I was like, I have to find out more about this guy. That's like, hey, want to see my leg? <laughs> like, yeah. No. I've gone to see it. So yeah. I can't say no. I mean, if you find yourself in a place like a, a Gettysburg or an Antietam and things get a little get a little spooky, you know, you never know. You never know. You might scream and find out it's just a bird. Who knows? Or you might find yourself in a real paranormal situation that you can't explain. But that's what's cool about going to these places is uh and if you wake up one day and you see the bathroom light on and you see old hood walk by. Don't blame me. Don't blame That's me. That's creepy. Oh, Don't there's no twelve me. foot no twelve foot ghost this year. No. No, no, ghost, no ghost in the window this year. That no was the one that scared Darren. Yeah, that was a creepy story. That was a creepy. I might have had a nightmare about that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think, but I think you know, I think that's um good place to drop off right now. I think to tell these stories. So, um, any final words from you guys before we head off into the great beyond? Mm, you know, Jen. <laughs> Just kind of to echo what you guys have been saying, even if you're not into the paranormal, go on the ghost tours just for the fun of it, for like the history fun of it. Mm -hmm. Because I've learned a lot about the civilians and some of their experiences from the ghost tours. The ghost tours were my introduction to Dan Sickles. Um, just I've learned a lot of funny stories. You know, you hear some funny stories too. Mm -hmm. And just things that 
you, that you're not going to find in a history book. Mm -hmm. So it definitely just, you don't have to take the paranormal side of it seriously, but go learn this, the, the, not the alternate history, but like the additional history, I think is a good way to say it. Because mm -hmm. it's not like facts and figures and battles, which are all wonderful and important. But this mm -hmm. is like this person who lived in town had this happen or that, you know, the orphan. You, you find out about the orphans yep. through the ghost tours more than anything else. Mm -hmm. The orphans mm -hmm. in Gettysburg. So, yeah, go it, on the go on the ghost tours because they're just fun. Yeah, well, I it all goes. It all goes back. It all goes back to the fact that we're talking about people, and people back then, the same as they are right now. They had their dreams. They had their fears. They had their hopes. They had their superstitions. They had their IPAs. <laughs> they had all of it. So you want you when you would go back when you were studying the, when you're studying the history of these people, you're really learning about the history of yourself too. And that's what's cool about this is you can really put yourself in their shoes and understand what they were going through. Whether you believe this stuff or not, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But you're learning a grassroots level history that you're not going to read in the books. It doesn't mean you're going to sit there and see a floating, you know, Slimer is going to come flying down the hall Slimer. at you in the middle of the night at the 1863 in. That doesn't mean I that's going to happen. Oh, who, you know, but definitely. But, but, but what it does, though, is it, it definitely just teaches you about the individuals and it, it does it does pique your interest with some of the stuff because they're, you know whether you whether whether you believe in ghosts or not everyone's had an experience where the hair is going the back of their neck and something feels unusual something feels weird and you can't explain it um so you know just just take that as a learning experience and have fun with this yep because who knows maybe maybe there's something there maybe maybe there there's something there yep well, as someone who's had their own experience with it, yes, I do yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. Hey. Tell me about it. All right. So what's coming up for us next, Mary? What's what's going on? What's new for um, us? So our next episode is going to be, um, we're going to do an episode about, I think, Hiram Granberry next. That's right. Um, as part of the anniversary on. for the Battles of Chattanooga are coming up in November. It's going to be the 160th, and we thought we've done episodes about the battle, so we are going to talk about one of the individuals that fought there, and that is General Hiram Granberry. We have a lot of fun with him, a hard-fighting guy, Texan guy, you know, uh, great hair. Taylor Swift would say he has hella good hair. He we're does. Going to be able to talk, we're going to be able to talk about him. And he's a hard-fighting guy. We're going to talk about his stuff and where his history, and he's got a very sad ending we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, he, he and his wife well. had, well, his wife too, like she factors, and it's going to be one where we get to talk about the like a female part of it as well, which is great, and his wife and her story, um, very sad story that happened to her, but he's got the Boston connection with being imprisoned here at Fort Warren for a period of time. Um, so that will be our next episode is General Hiram Granberry. A lot of fun with that. All right. So any final words, Jen, again, thank you so much for joining us once again for our fourth annual uh, Spooktacular. It's always always great to bring you back to the Boo Barn, open the door, let you in, and talk about yep. some of these stories. I know how much you uh, you much enjoy these as well. Yeah, 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 I do. Thank you guys for for inviting me on every year. This oh. is fun. Yeah, it's tradition now. So thank you for joining us. And to our listeners, thank yeah. you for supporting us for these last 118 episodes. And we will see y'all on the other side. And happy Halloween. And happy Halloween. Hopefully no one gives you apples and pennies. Give out good <laughs> If you're giving out candy, give out Reese's peanut butter cups. The big ones, the good ones. Not Treat raisins. the kids well. <laughs> You don't want to be trust yeah. you don't want to be you don't want to be egg, cleaning the egg off your house the next day or your car. Trust me. <laughs> treat the kids well, they'll treat you well. Have a happy Halloween. Stay safe. Enjoy the holiday. It is my personal favorite holiday. And everybody, we'll see you literally on the other side. Right. See y'all later. Bye. Bye guys. Bye.